Welcome to the podcast, uh, episode 65. Great to have you here. Now, the thing I want to talk about initially is the problem that is created by uh, perfectionists or purists in various disciplines, various areas. I'm fond of saying that God is perfect, which means he's not a perfectionist. God is perfect, not a perfectionist. Uh, what we what we tend to do over and over again is that when we we make the um, the best into the enemy of the good, and and we do this in many different ways and in many different areas. We think that if one's good, two's better. Uh, don't force it, as we used to say in the Navy. Don't force it. Get a bigger hammer. Um, purists are are often the enemy of improvement. Uh, they're the enemy of growth. Uh, so for here's one example. In the introduction to his um, great book, English Literature in the 16th Century, uh, the introduction is something like uh, 62 pages. And that introduction really ought to be published uh, separately as its own little booklet uh, because you will learn all kinds of things about uh, humanists and the Puritans and the whole um, uh, culture, cultural milieu of, of that of that time. Anyway, uh, Lewis uh, critiques the humanists, the people who were engaged in recovering the classical languages um, and trying to rebuild the whole uh, classical world. Uh, Lewis charges them with having been the death of the thing they were trying to recover. They um, so so for example, um, we we need to realize that down down to the beginning of the modern era, and as late as um, the 1700s. So for example, Jonathan Edwards in the American colonies didn't go to Yale and take a course in Latin. He went to Yale and his courses were taught in Latin. Um, uh, Latin was the lingua franca of the university system all over the Western world. So someone from one country could take a, accept a teaching position in, in, in another university. Uh, Bootser could go over to England and teach there because everything was taught in Latin. But because it was medieval Latin, because it was Latin that was a living language, that meant that you had to have words in Latin for things like jogging or toaster oven or iPhone. And that kind of thing drove the purists crazy. So the purists want, wanted to go back to the glory that was, uh, the glories that were in evidence in Augustan Rome, uh, the time of Virgil, or they wanted to go back to Periclean Athens. So there was one humanist, for example, who would not use a case ending in Latin if that case ending were not used somewhere in the writings of Cicero. So I'm not going to use a case ending that if, if, I, if I cannot find it attested in the works of Cicero, I'm not going to use it. I'm going to, I'm going to avoid it. Now, what Lewis points out is that this uh, rigor, when it came to, uh, you know, the rigorous demand that was placed on um, the study of Latin had the effect of killing Latin. Um, so the, the, the friends of Latin were demanding a high allegiance. They, they, they demanded uh, that everybody who, who was uh, going to be a devotee of Latin 
had to be sold out, had to be all in. Um, and the, the effect that it had was it destroyed, uh, it destroyed Latin. The same thing happens, uh, f- for example, with music. When, when someone says, uh, really gets into music and they really uh, start to pursue it and they, you know, practice the piano 26 hours a day and, um, and it's classical music that they're pursuing, they can, they can pursue it to such an extent that they become two tons of no fun for everybody. And what they do, instead of advancing the cause of higher standards in music, they cause a, they precipitate a revolt against higher standards in music. Um, and this, this is basically, I think, in, uh, in line with what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. Why, why be righteous over much? Do not be righteous over much. Why destroy yourself? There's such a thing as putting too many eggs in the pudding. There's such a thing as uh, doubling down or tripling down on something that would have been good had you been able to pursue it with a little more of a relaxed feeling than what you are, than what you wind up, wind up doing. Uh, so it could be, uh, it could be classical Christian education. It could be Latin. It could be music. It could be, uh, you know, theology, church attendance. Um, you basically what happens is when you have a sold out cadre of people who really want to, to get something established, the temptation is to overreach. And when you overreach, you find yourself being the, the instrument of your beloved's death. So the book I want to review or just point to uh, in this podcast, Podcast 65, is um, a book called The Reformation in England by Merle Daubigny. It comes in two volumes. Uh, it's published by uh, Banner of Truth. And Daubigny is a 19th century historian. And, uh, and part of my reason for, uh, a central part of my reason for commending this history uh, to you is that Daubigny is not affected by the, uh, the modern myth that a historian is supposed to be a disinterested scientist. Daubigny is a storyteller. Uh, a, a Christian historian ought to be honest. Uh, we, we ought not to tell lies for Jesus. We ought not to tell any inspiring Reformation stories that somebody made up out of whole cloth. And that happens sometimes, I'm sure. Uh, and we ought not to tell, we ought not to tell inspirational stories uh, that get people choked up because they're stories that are on our side. At the same time, you could be honest and on a side. You can be honest and be an advocate. So the thing that is um, plain about Daubigny as he writes uh, about the history of the Reformation. He, he has another history of the whole Reformation, but the, this two-volume history of the Reformation in England is, is quite good, and it's told by an honest advocate. So this is, a, this is a historian who is rooting for the Reformers. He's on their side. He likes them. He thinks that they're the good, good guys and the other guys are the bad guys. Um, he is cheering for them. But he, he's not um, airbrushing out all the warts. 
on that account. So he's he's um, a partisan. Someone someone who is a blind partisan is not going to tell the truth about his own side. Um, you see, the same, the, that model is set for us in the scriptures, right? The, um, the gospel writers are not writing as disinterested, objective historians. Uh, what would you think about a, a man who wrote down an objective history of what Christ said and did, including the fact that he rose from the dead, who did not become a disciple, you, what you, if, if you said, uh, I, want, I want an honest, objective historian who is there, who can testify, who can verify that all these things happened, and I want an honest man, and I want him to see Jesus after he rose from the dead, and I want him to fail to believe. Well, that makes no sense. When we take the side of Christ, we are ultimately becoming his disciples, but he's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, as Bacon once said, we shouldn't offer to the uh, author of truth the unclean sacrifice of a lie. Um, so, if I'm serving Jesus Christ, I should tell the truth. And that's what you see. The um, disciples do not have their warts airbrushed out. Uh, we see the, the colla- utter collapse of Judas. We see the uh, cowardly denial of Peter after his bluster and boasting that he wouldn't that he wouldn't deny the Lord. We see that all the disciples except for John scattered when when Jesus was arrested, uh, and that's one of the ways we know that we're dealing with honest men. They are entirely and completely on the side of Christ. They are not trying to they're not trying to tell evenly their perspective and the Pharisees' perspective. They are advocates, but they're honest advocates. And that's the kind of uh, pattern that Daubigny uh, follows as he tells the, the history of the Reformation in England. Um, uh, very readable, very accessible. Um, if, you're, if you're interested in covering, if you're covering that era in, uh, uh, in your homeschooling curriculum and you want something to read up on, uh, that's, a, that's a good book to get. The History of the, the Reformation in England by Merle Daubigny. So, Hamartiology, episode 65 of the podcast. Uh, again, thanks for being with us. Uh, the New Testament has one other general word for sin, which is hamartema, hamartema, a word used a total of four times. The first use is found in Mark 3.28, where Jesus says that all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, along with their blasphemies. He goes on to say that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then, in the next chapter, 4.12, he gives an example of the kind of spiritual darkening that the light of the parables causes. So, the parables shine a light, and shining that light, it causes a certain kind of person to scrunch up their eyes even tighter and and causes them to descend into a deeper darkness. So the parables are light, and they bring light to some people, and they bring darkness to others. If the deaf heard and the blind saw, then they would be converted, and their sins would be forgiven them. But they can't and don't, and their sins remain. Paul mentions that Christ's blood is a propitiation for those who have faith, 
and that this declares his righteousness for the remission of past sins. Romans 3.25 And in his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul tells them to flee from fornication because it is the sin that is not like others outside the body. Fornication defiles the temple of the body in the way, in a way that other sins do not. Let me say that again. Fornication defiles the temple of the body in the way that other sins do not. And it's worth noting here that Paul expressly excludes sins against the temple, like smoking or eating too much refined sugar. Um, the passage that the passage about your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit is not a passage that is talking about staying fit or eating healthy. It is a passage about staying sexually moral and expressly limits the, co- the scope of discussion to only that. So if someone were to splay their fingers on a concrete slab and take a, a meat cleaver to one of their fingers, chop one of their fingers off, uh, I would be the first to say that this is bad stewardship. Not a, not a good idea. Not, not to be done. Not a good idea. Don't do that. But it was not a sin against the temple of the Holy Spirit. You sinned against, you insulted your body, <coughs> you chopped off a finger, which you should not have done. But Paul says, all other sins a man commits are outside the body, but he who sins sexually is sinning against the temple of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says that sins that affect the body are not the same thing as sins that defile the body. Sins that affect the body are not sins that defile the body. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too.